Today, I am so proud to have Trent Cotney on the RLW again. Trent, as you all know, leading, leading thought leader in the industry, and no one knows OSHA better than Trent. So today, it's all about OSHA and knowing your rights. And for the few of you out there today who may not know Trent, Trent is a partner and practice group leader at Adams and Reese. He is the general contractor along a general contractor, general counsel um, for several associations, including the NRCA, FRSA, and Western States. Um, Trent, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you back. Hey, it's great to be here. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. And I am so excited about this today. Um, talk about an important topic for everyone out there to really understand knowing their rights um, when it comes to ocean inspections, documentation, and all of that. So um, thank you. And I say, let's get started. Sounds good. Okay. Okay. So Trent, let's just start out and talk about OSHA inspections. What should people know? Sure. So the one thing that I want to hit home in our conversations today is everybody that's attending this, we and everybody that's listening, we all want our employees to go home safe and sound every night, right? I mean, that's that's always the goal. And I've always said that every penny that you spend on safety is a penny well spent. One of the things that, that I really want to hit home in the next hour or so is just to have people understand that um, there is a safety component to OSHA, right? Uh, but it's also very important as an employer that you understand how to mitigate risk for purposes of your liability. And what I'm really going to hit on is what rights you have as an employer, the things that you need to know and the things that you need to understand. So when an ocean inspection happens, and I see we've got a lot of uh, familiar faces that, that I know well on the, on the line here, some of you guys, <clears throat> some of you guys are in different states, right? They may have state plans instead of the federal OSHA uh, guidelines, but the standards are going to be the similar, if, similar if not more stringent. We're all familiar with uh, the requirements that that uh, OSHA or the state plans have, and the importance for keeping your employees safe. But what a lot of contractors miss, Heidi, is that it's not just about employee safety. Okay, if you get an OSHA fine. Um, we're, we have several now that are in six-figure plus range, right? And it doesn't matter how big you are, a, a six-figure fine can detrimentally impact that bottom line. Um, injuries that happen, uh, you know, on-site, especially serious injuries and God forbid fatalities, that brings a lot of problems with it. I mean, we do, I would say, several dozen fatality defenses every year, and when those happen, there are issues with insurance, you know, whether it's workers comp or maybe some other insurance has been impacted. There's issues with press and, you know, how your reputation appears to those that, you know, may be watching a, a news program where it says, hey, you know, this contractor had a fatality on the job site. You never know who's watching those, those videos, right? It could be your competition, could be your potential customers. Um, the other thing is just, you know, understanding the impact that it has on your employees, on their morale, um, you know, the professionalism of the company. And then obviously one of the things that you really have to watch out for long term is from a business perspective, how does this affect your job cost internally, you know, as it may relate to things like insurance and, and other factors, 
and how it may factor your ability to get business in the future. To give you an example, we had a contractor that was recently cited with a willful citation. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, uh, willful is, you don't want that. That's one of the, the uh, highest level citations you can get. And it basically says that there was, uh, you know, the equivalent of, of some uh, knowing conduct on the part of uh, ownership that led to that. So this particular contractor did a lot of um, federal work and uh, would have been prevented from bidding on certain projects if that citation had remained. And that's one of the things that wow. a lot of, yeah, a lot of, you know, roofing contractors don't understand that it's not just about stroking a check. It's not just about employee safety. There's all these different things that kind of go into the makeup of you know, how to properly defend against uh, an OSHA citation or an inspection if it happens. Yeah, and you know, I just, to add to that one, you bring up such a great point on reputation management because in today's world also retention and hiring and getting employees and keeping them. And if you, they're looking online to see what kind of safety records companies have and how do they take care of their employees. So yeah, it's some of those things you don't even think about until it's too late. Yeah, and that's, you know, recently OSHA announced that it was going to expand um, its electronic record keeping requirements. So part of the issue is, is that, you know, your competitors, your, your customers, your future customers, at some point, you know, depending on your size, they may have access to your 300, your 300A, your 301 logs, uh, and they can see exactly how safe a company you are or are not. Um, so, yeah. you know, that's that's in rulemaking right now, but if that continues to expand, that's something that, that we obviously need to keep our eye on. Yeah. Well, as we're, as we're looking at um, the, you know, really kind of staying in front of these inspections and being proactive when it comes to OSHA. Let's talk a little bit about the key documentation that contractors should have out there for their companies. Yeah, so you guys have heard me speak before, right? It doesn't matter what I'm talking about. I always say the same thing, the party with the best paper wins the day. This, this is absolutely the case when it comes to defending against OSHA citations. So um, one of the key things that you need to do, and for our listeners, if you don't take anything away from from today's talk, go back to your office and make sure that you start backfilling your documentation because that's going to be the difference in, in being able to successfully defend against a uh, OSHA inspection. Okay, so the first thing that everybody needs, and we all know this, is you need a good safety manual. Right, you got to have a good safety manual. If you've got uh, employees that speak another language, I put you know Spanish here, but it could be any language. You got to make sure that that safety manual is translated into the language that they speak. Right? Because the idea here, Heidi, is you got to be able to instill that you've got a culture of safety. You got to be able to explain what your safety protocols are downstream. Um, you know, the next thing that you, you really need to do with your safety manual is make sure that it's consistently updated. So, you know, I, I see, you know, um, Wendy Marvin made a comment on here and, you know, she, you know, regardless of whether you're in Washington or Oregon or California or any of those states, I guarantee you while we're talking, there's gonna be another another rule that's been enacted, right? Yeah. So it's very important that anytime that you've got, um, you know, uh, if you're in one of those state plan areas or if you're in an area that, that may have some significant regulation, you wanna make sure that you're updating your safety manual to reflect that. 
and that you're training on that because OSHA will hone in on that. You know, if you don't have the latest requirements for, you know, the silica standard or hydration or heat injury and illness or, um, you know, signs of impairment for marijuana usage or opioid usage, all those key things are, are incredibly important. So really, really recommend that. Um, you know, next thing, Heidi, is uh, in your safety manual, and you probably have a, a disciplinary program, right? And looking at the participants, you guys are all real smart. You, you've got, you know, something in there that talks about, you know, an oral reprimand, a written reprimand, uh, you know, suspension termination, or you can accelerate it depending on the gravity. But here's the key thing is, and this is the example that, that I like to give. If you've got the biggest problem in construction right now, uh, well, it's the materials issue, but assuming that wasn't the biggest problem, it's skilled labor, right? We still right. can't find anybody to do the work, right? So with skilled labor, if you've got somebody good, if you've got a really good, you know, foreman or superintendent or project manager, and they don't put on fall protection, are you really going to fire them? Are you really going to do that? If they're your best producer, are you really going to follow, you, follow your disciplinary policy and write them up or find them or suspend them, you know, and the answer is usually no. And the problem with that, Heidi, is that when OSHA comes and they start looking at that documentation, they're looking for consistency of application, okay? consistency of application. This is, this applies to all employee situations, okay? The one thing that you've got to remember is that if you start treating people differently, you're going to get into trouble. Okay. Yeah. Disparate treatment, regardless of whether it's with OSHA, with its wage and hour, with its anything, that will get you into trouble. So great example is if you, you know, uh, pay Peter under the table, but you pay Paul, you know, via payroll, you're going to have a problem. Okay. Same applies to OSHA. If you're disciplining, disciplining the person that you just got off work release, but you're not disciplining, dis disciplining the person that is your best producer, that's going to hurt you down the road for asserting some of the defenses that we'll talk about, okay? Next thing I wanna mention is evidence of ongoing training. So one of the things that you gotta have is you've got to be able to show that you're investing in uh, ongoing, you know, whether it's toolbox talks um, on current topics, it can be the basics, you know, how to properly tie off, put on a harness, tie off a ladder, PPE. It could be something a little bit more advanced, uh, you know, calculating swing radius or, you know, uh, uh, underlayment, uh, slip safety or whatever it might be. But the key is you got to get sign-off sheets, right? If you don't get people to sign off that they were there, it's going to be very hard to prove that when the time comes. Document, 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 okay? Um, big believer in safety audits as well. And there's really two kinds that I like to see. One is uh, equipment safety checks. So you always do that before you get out to the job site. Okay? Don't take that frayed rope and throw it in the truck because OSHA will assume that you're still going to use it. So the key is just check that stuff in the morning, have a document or you know, use software that says that you've checked it. And then that way you've got something that you can show OSHA. Okay? Next thing is, is you want to do unannounced safety audits. Then it's not going to be useful if you're announcing when you're going to come. Yeah. So what you want to do is go out to a job site and hide in the bushes or pretend you're OSHA and take photos and then meet with your team and say, look, here's what you did good, here's what you did bad, okay? And it's, it's funny, you know, you, you guys may appreciate this. You're, 
some of you are probably wondering, well, Trent, isn't that just going to make me look bad if I find a bunch of stuff that's wrong? It, the answer is only if you don't correct it, right? <laughs> so OSHA wants you to go out and find the bad stuff. But the key is, is you got to take the time to retrain. So you need self-serving documentation that shows that you retrain. So here's a great example. You go out to a job site, you see the ladder's not tied off. Okay, you bring your foreman and your three crew members down. You say, look, go tie this ladder off. You bring them back in, either before work, after work, during work, whatever. You do a retraining session on how to tie off a ladder. It sounds stupid, but that's what you do. You get them to sign off a sheet, and there you go. You got it. Okay, that's great evidence that you know someone like me would need to defend against an OSHA citation. Um, last thing I'll mention, Heidi, and I know I'm talking a lot here, but no, uh, good. you, you want to... You really want to invest in your people. And, you know, look, I was a business owner for 10 years, right? Still own businesses. And uh, I often got, I had the mentality, you know, I, I wondered myself, does it make sense to invest employee and employees? What if they end up leaving, right? And the realization that I came to is that there's really two reasons that you want to invest in your employees. One is, is you show them that you care about. So it may help in retention. Okay. The second is, is even if they do leave, you're elevating the profession, right? You, you want these people to be safe. So look, I've got an OSHA 10, I got an OSHA 30, I got the Haswell. If I can get them, anybody can get them, right? So the stuff's online, you can sit through courses, you can do it at your own pace. Have your superintendent, your foreman, your key people, make sure they get these types of credentials because these credentials are going to help uh, show that they were properly trained if and when the time comes. Okay, invest, invest, invest. It's really worth it because not only will it make your employees feel better, but it's going to help you uh, hopefully save dollars down the road. Yes. And as Henry, Henry Staggs just jumped on and he mentioned that uh, associations offer OSHA training as well. Absolutely. You know, we obviously have belonged to a lot of different roofing associations, as do you, Heidi. A lot of great resources there. Yeah. They do. And we do have questions coming in the chat. Thank you. That is so awesome. Some of them we'll address as we go, but we're also going to save some of these for the end. So don't think that we're ignoring it. We'll, we'll, we'll capture all these questions as we go. And one thing I just wanted to also note, Trent, is when you said, you know, sign off on a piece of paper or use some software. There's a lot of great software out there that actually tracks this all the time. Um, so contractors definitely should be asking not only the software they already are using about any safety features, but also looking possibly at safety software too. Yeah, absolutely. So tons of great safety apps out there. Um, they make life easy. Uh, my recommendation is that if you're going to use a safety app, make sure that you've got someone that is overseeing it, right? So if you're, let's say you have a safety director, um, one problem that I ran into with a roofing contractor is they had their people on site take photos of like installation of anchor points and tie off of ladders or whatever and send it to the safety uh, person, safety director. And they were signing off on it without really looking at the photos. Well, I get these photos and, you know, there's like, you know, three or four empty drill spaces on the anchor point. The ladder is, I mean, I see blatant violations that the safety director signed off on. That's damning oh. evidence. So if you can't, what I always recommend is if you're concerned, don't take the photos to begin with, yeah. you know, but uh, use the, the software is good. 
some other interesting questions that came up here that I want to touch on briefly, Heidi. Yes, is, yes. Um, so Jeff talks about, uh, um, he's in California, and he talks about uh, subcontractor liability. Um, I've done entire presentations on this. So as a prime roofing contractor, I believe that you should do whatever you can to keep anybody that, that works for you or under you safe. One of the things that you got to be worried about with Cal OSHA and with OSHA in general is multi-employer site liability, which means that if you are the controlling contractor for purposes of safety, that you could be liable. Okay, so there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. And one of the things I like to do is really spell it out in the subcontract agreement but uh, you can participate. You just need to be very careful about how you do it. In other words, you don't want to be giving them stuff with your logo and hard hat on it. You don't want to be up there correcting their violations. You want to tell their foreman or superintendent how to correct it and have them do it. But great question. The other question is, is from Wendy, and she asked, uh, do, I, do I ever see a situation where employees will take li partial liability for OSHA violations? I'd love to do that. We, we did, uh, we do OSHA work up in, um, it's OHS up there in Canada. There is partial liability for employees up there. Uh, do I ever see in the U.S.? Absolutely not. The union pool is too great. Uh, I saw it firsthand. Do not think it will ever happen. It could be wrong, but I, I wouldn't put money on it. So yeah. just wow. wanted to answer that. Yeah, yeah. no, I love it. That's great. Um, okay, well then let's keep on going then with the inspection process because sure. so, a lot of questions around that. Yeah, yeah. So you got your basic documentation in place, right? Um, one other thing I want to mention is the use of third-party consultants. Um, I don't know about you, Heidi, but when I sit and I talk to the people that work for me, I can tell that most of them aren't paying attention to me. But <laughs> if I brought in, if I brought in somebody else, you know, if yeah. I brought in, you know, John Kenny or somebody else to come talk to them, they're going to pay attention to them, right? Because it, it's not me. It's just like when I'm talking to my son. I know he's not listening. Yeah. <laughs> So that's, that's the idea is, is you want to, sometimes if you bring in a third party, your people are more likely to pay attention to them because they're not going to automatically dismiss you. It's right. also great to show that you're investing, right? So uh, the other thing is, uh, is if you are in, uh, involved in an OSHA inspection, the inspection process itself is where you really need to focus. Okay, and I'll, I'll say this again, okay? The, after you get the citation, the facts are already there, right? They're already set forth. There's only so much magic you can work. It's the inspection process. That is where you put your best foot forward. So you really need to focus and pay attention to what I'm going to say here because it's going to end up saving you some money, okay? First thing that you need to understand, regardless of it's Cal OSHA, OSHA, North Carolina OSHA, I see some people from you know Oregon, Washington here, no matter where it is, they got to come out and they got to show their credentials. They got to say, I am with OSHA or whatever the equivalent is, and uh, here are my credentials, and I am here because of X. Okay, I was just driving by and I saw four people on a roof without fall protection. Okay, it is imperative that you get them to say that. Okay because that puts that inspection in a box. And that means that they are there for that reason and that reason only. Now, obviously, Heidi, if it's a fatality, it's a wall-to-wall -wall investigation. They can do whatever they want. But if this is a situation where uh, it's just a routine inspection, they can't go inside and start investigating you know, the electrical outlets if, or if they just came for purposes of 
seeing four people on a roof, right? It, it boxes them in. Now, let me take a step back. You always need to be truthful with OSHA. Always tell the truth. Cooperate, but know your rights and be civil. Don't ever be aggressive. It's never gonna, it's never gonna help you, okay? Uh, I'm that way with every single government agency that I deal with. I'm always very respectful, but I assert my rights, right? And there's no issue with doing that. So after the OSHA inspector comes out, they're going to say, hey, I am so-and-so, I am with OSHA, I am here because of X, Y, and Z. Okay, that's very important. Next thing that I like to do, and I do an advanced level course on um, standard operating procedures for OSHA inspections. Okay? You, you have to have an SOP in place because what you want to do is you want to make sure that whoever's in charge of that job is calling the home office and is saying, hey, can you wait long enough for me to get the safety director or management out here? Because if I do that, those people are going to be more adept at being able to handle the situation than someone who hasn't experienced anything like that before, okay? So oftentimes, OSHA will wait 30 minutes to a couple of hours to get somebody out there, and that's a great opportunity for you to get, you know, a member of management on the job site. Um, they will conduct what's known as a walk-around inspection. So the walk-around inspection is basically where they go through the project um, for purposes of investigating the reason they are there. So again, if they are there to inspect the roof and access points to the roof, that's the scope of their walk-around inspection. It doesn't mean that they can investigate, you know, the meth lab that you got in the back of the building. They are, they are solely for that purpose, right? So if for some reason they want to go beyond that, then you need to say, hey, that exceeds the scope of this inspection. I don't believe you got the capability to do that. Why don't we focus on what's what the issue is at hand? But from a liability perspective, I can't have you walking around this property because you know I don't have the insurance to cover you, and the, I know the owner doesn't want that either. So that's a way where you can say, "Hey, I don't want you walking around this because I don't want to get li I don't want to be liable for something." What you do is you approach it from a liability standpoint, and you say, "I'm concerned about you know if something happens to you." on this job site where you're not supposed to be, that's not gonna be good, right? And um, you, gotta, you gotta play a little bit of politics there to, to navigate that. That's a good way to do it. So something else that I, I wanna make sure that everybody understands is your right as it relates to having to talk to OSHA. Now, first of, first of all, OSHA, you can refuse access to any job site. Okay, a lot of people don't realize that. You can refuse access. You can say, nah, you can't come in here. You know, I don't, there's five dead bodies in the back. I'm sorry, you can't, can't come on here. Now, they can go and turn around and get an OSHA uh, warrant, right? They can go to a court and get a warrant and come out and, and get access, but that's very hard to do, okay? I don't recommend denying access to OSHA. Let me just say that, okay? <laughs> Not a good way to start no. off. Don't ever recommend, don't ever recommend doing that. Um, the next thing that you need to understand is OSHA can't compel you to talk during the initial inspection, right? They can't sit you down and detain you. They can't force you to do to talk to them. Now, later they can send out a subpoena. They can, you know, do more things like that, but they can't physically detain you. Okay. Here's another thing: is you should never ever agree to show them how to do something. I have a lot of ocean inspectors come out and say, "Well, show me how you would put on this harness." That's the equivalent of an entrapment. And nah, that's not how it works. I'm not, I had, so hi, this is a real world story there. This is absolutely true. So you guys know the silica standard, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, okay. When OSHA was promulgating that rule, uh, apparently they reached out to a lot of area directors and they said, we need you guys to get information. I was representing a contractor, a large roofing contractor that had multiple uh, citations that we were navigating. And the assistant area director contacted me and said, we would like to go out to one of your client's job sites, have them cut tile so we can measure silica. And I just simply responded, no, that was, that was, that was my response. No. And uh, they responded back and were like, well, you know, we disagree, but blah, blah, we're going to go get a warrant. And I said, my address is, uh, you know, X, Y, Z. Uh, you can ask for me. I look forward to receiving it. Okay. And that was, you know, probably eight, nine years ago. I'm still waiting on it. Right. Um, and because I knew they couldn't do that. They can't force you to put you in a situation where you're going to commit a violation. Right? It didn't work that way. So if they ask you to do things like that, that's that's beyond the scope of their capability. Okay? You've got you've got a constant equivalent of a constitutional right that says you don't have to do that. OK, the next thing that you need to understand is that there's a big difference between what a supervisory level person can say and what a non-supervisory person can do during an employee investigation, right? So when OSHA comes out to a job site, they have the ability to talk to employees that don't have any supervisory capability. So this is just crew, right? Your your men and women that are on a crew, if they don't supervise others, OSHA can talk to them without management present and without counsel present. Now, the employee has the ability to ask for counsel, but rarely is that counsel the same counsel as management, right? And that never happens. So what happens is is OSHA goes back and they talk to this employee without anybody else, and they always present a written witness statement, okay? In the age of everything electronic, we just talked about software apps, right? Yeah. They they pull out their notepad and they give it to them and say, okay, sign this, right? And there's never anything good on there, Heidi. It's always, you know, these guys suck. They're the worst at safety I've ever seen. You know, they made me, you know, bury dead bodies, you know, whatever it is. It's always horrible stuff. And they sign it because a lot of times the crew members are scared, right? They're scared and they're nervous. And OSHA will come up and they'll say, hey, I'm a federal agent. And, you know, there's, there's, yeah, you'd be surprised. People are just very nervous. So one thing that, that, that I want everyone to understand, and this happens a lot when you have Spanish-speaking only employees, is that there is a lot of problems with OSHA and the interpreting side of things. We, we have experienced translation errors simply because there were different dialects that were, <clears throat> that were spoken within Spanish. Now, I'm proficient, I'm, you know, I'm embarrassed to speak, but I understand it pretty well. We had a situation where um, we, uh, a couple of superintendents were being interviewed in my office. We had management present, uh, as well as myself. Management was fluent. And the, uh, the COSHO, the investigator, uh, she was a, uh, came from Puerto Rico, but the, the um, two superintendents were from Mexico. And we were talking about the installation of a tile roof. And there was a term of art that was used that I recognized immediately. But the compliance officer mistook it and her interpretation of what was said would have been the equivalent of a citation. I caught it, management caught it, but had we not been there, that miscommunication could have been cataclysmic, right? So always request that either a translator be present or 
you know, that the employee have someone there that they feel is competent to translate for them. It could be another person, another superintendent, whatever it is. Don't just rely on OSHA's person that may or may not know anything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the next thing that I want, so we talked a little bit about uh, non-supervisory personnel, right? Can't have council president. Supervisory personnel, superintendents, project managers, foremen, directors, officers, you have the right to say, I will not talk to OSHA until council and a member of management is present and or, right? Um, so that is a right that must be asserted. This is not, you don't get a Miranda warning. You don't get the right to remain silent. You have the right yeah. to counsel. They won't tell you any of that, right? Heidi, it's not... That's not the kind of thing, even though there are potential criminal penalties involved, they won't tell you any of that. So you have to know this right. And if you have a superintendent on that job site, it is really ownership that must tell the superintendent to assert that right. It is not really the superintendent's right, okay? And the reason okay. is, is that anything that the superintendent says, it's, it's going to be implicated on ownership. Okay, this is where willful violations come in. If the superintendent says, yeah, I know I was supposed to be the safety monitor, but I went and had a beer by the truck instead, it doesn't matter that you know, the vice president and president didn't know anything about that. It's going to be imputed to them because they are ownership. Supervisory personnel, you must assert the right to counsel. Okay, the other reason is, I can tell you, it's, it's night and day. Okay, the difference between somebody talking uh, with me there and with without me there, much, much mm -hmm. different, Heidi, as you can imagine. I can imagine. So yeah. the reason yeah. is, is, is they have an opportunity to really think about what they're going to say. They, they've refreshed their recollection on their training. They're not nervous because they got somebody there to protect them, right? And that's the key thing is, is you want to slow everything down to the extent that you can while cooperating. Mm -hmm. The other okay. thing that, that I really recommend, Heidi, is if OSHA comes out to your job site, never continue doing work okay don't this is not this is not an operations thing this is not a safety thing this is risk mitigation um i had a uh, this will date me a little bit this is 22 23 years ago at this point i had a uh, underground utility contractor where we were representing um digging a ditch on the side of the road uh the closing conference was occurring um and uh one of the crew members jumped into the ditch they grabbed their lunch pail and scurried out of it. That was another $5,000 fine. Okay, they had been cited for, you know, trench, lack of a trench box, you know, the sloping gradient was wrong, all this other stuff. Had there been nobody on that site, there wouldn't have been anybody to, anybody to do anything wrong, right? So the other thing is, is that if OSHA is looking for employees to interview and they're not on the site, then guess what happens? You got to schedule another time. Okay. So I really recommend don't continue doing work because um, as one assistant area director told me, I don't care how safe you are, you put me on any job in the United States for a day and I will get at least one citation. Wow. I believe, yeah. right? That's all it yeah. takes is unhook at one point and you're in, you're in trouble. Um, yeah. The question popped up, can you send the employees home? You can do whatever you want to with the employees. The key thing is you don't want to sound the OSHA alarm. Right. You don't want to have like, a, you know, the air raid siren and everybody jumps off the roof and into the bushes and scurries away. You don't want to do that. But, you know, I often say, look, you guys take a break. You know, uh, I don't want you to 
because I am distracted with this OSHA investigation and I can't focus my attention on you, why don't you take the rest of the day off? Why don't you go grab lunch? Why don't you get the hell out of here? Because that, trust me, that's going to help tremendously. The other thing that I like to do is you have got to create a central point of communication. You've got to be able to have that OSHA inspector communicate with one person and the flow of information go through that person. So oftentimes when we jump in, everything that OSHA asks for, they're asking for a reason. Okay? They're asking for documents, your OSHA logs, your disciplinary history. They're trying to defeat defenses, right? If they're asking to talk to people, they're asking for a reason. If you can get that information, have one person control it, you're going to be much better off. Um, question came up, and I think this is probably worth talking about uh, from Tammy. Great question, by the way. Um, how much detail is too much detail? Well, great example on your OSHA logs. I've had some really dumb stuff on there. Like, guy fell off, guy fell off a roof because we didn't give him fall protection. What are you doing? You know, you're killing me. You know, same with uh, your reports to workers' comp, right? That stuff's discoverable. Uh, you know, looks like the looks like uh, the ladder wasn't tied off, right? And it fell on top of them. You know, why are you saying that? Don't don't say stuff like that, right? Um, if it's good for you, put it in writing. If it's bad for you, pick up the phone. So my what Tammy, if it's about safety and it's about how much safety training you've done and all that other stuff. And yeah, write as much as you want to about it. If it's about how somebody got hurt on your dime, then less is more always. Um, one thing that I like to do, Heidi, and uh, is when an OSHA investigation incur occurs, right? You may have you know four people working for you, but by the time that you get cited, those four people may be gone. So it's very important, and work with your counsel on this, that you interview those people and get them to sign sworn statements, get them to sign affidavits, okay? And if you work with your attorney and you send that to your attorney, then that can become attorney work product, attorney client privilege, okay? Now, obviously um, I'm simplifying things, but we had a situation where we, it, there was about a, from start to finish, you know, the, the citation was issued around the six month time period, which is the deadline. And then we didn't go to, to the final hearing for about another six months. By the time that happened, the crew left and went back to Guatemala, okay? And uh, we hired a, a private investigator to try to go find them. They're still looking, right? It's, you're never gonna find them. So the goal is, is get that information at the time that it happened because oftentimes it contradicts OSHA's written witness statements. And if you don't have anything else other than a contradictory written witness statement, it's better than having nothing, right? right? So that is something that I, I have used many times. Uh, I often produce those at informal conferences to try to settle things, you know, to say, look, I know what your guy got, but my guy, my employee feels like they were strong-armed here, and that's not really what they said. Here is an affidavit that contradicts that, okay? Then the, you know, the area director is scratching their head going, this is going to be tough. What do we do with this, right? So... Um, back to the script here yeah. at the end, they do a closing conference, right? And they'll say, Hey, you know, um, the coast shows, the investigators always try to be your best buddy. You know, they're always like, Oh, I'm just here, you know, because, you know, I just, uh, I don't know. I heard you guys might be doing something wrong. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe you can tell me what you do on the job site, you know, and they'll, they'll buddy up to you. 
And even at the closing conference, I'm like, well, I don't know what's going to happen here. You know, you might be cited for this and that. So the investigator's not your buddy. They're never going to be your buddy. Don't try to make friends with the investigator because there are tactics and techniques that they use to get you to spill information. Always have your game face on. Again, it's all about safety. It's all about telling the truth. It's all about being cooperative. But you need, they're playing a game. You need to understand what the converse of that is. So, wow. Wow. I mean, that, that's a lot. Um, yep. So let's, because uh, I want to make sure we get uh, such great information, Trent. I want to make sure we get yep. through this. Um, the citation action steps. How's that yep. work? Right. So one thing that I really recommend, look, it's not the people that are, there's, there's some people that are a lot smarter than I am on this call right now, right? You, you guys aren't the people I'm worried about. It's the crew. It's the crew that does dumb stuff. They say dumb things. And it's not because they're not valuable and, and all that stuff. It's because they're just scared, right? So the best thing that you can do is train your crew on what happens during an ocean inspection. I'm not talking about strong arming them. You don't want a whistleblower situation. You don't want to tell them, don't talk to OSHA, but just have them understand that it's part of construction. Okay, it's going to happen. And here's what you do. Let's refresh. Your, let me refresh your recollection on all the training you've had. You know, don't be concerned. Here are the steps that you follow. Always tell the truth. You want to make sure that you hit that up, right? But if you take that anxiety away, if you take that fear away, then you're going to have a much better uh, result. A lot of times people say dumb things. I've had I've had crew members say, I was never trained on how to operate a lull, right? When I'm looking at the toolbox talk where they were trained on how to operate a lull, you know, and it's just, it's stupid stuff like that, that they say, cause they're nervous. So part of it is taking away that anxiety, that uncertainty by explaining to them what happens during the process. Um, if you are issued a citation, what will happen is, uh, you will, you will get it uh, in the mail or via email. When you get it, you need to verify the date to contest the citation. Okay. Um, don't do the math in your head. If this is a federal state, what happens is you got 15 business days from the data receipt. Don't guess at what that date is. What I like to do, Heidi, is I contact the area office. I confirm the date. And then I send a follow-up email saying, this is confirming that I have until May 26th to contest the citation. If this is incorrect, please notify me immediately. Thank you, God bless. Okay, and that way, trust me, I've had to submit that as evidence because there've been plenty of times where they've said, nah, you missed it. I'm like, ah, I haven't. So um, when you uh, do that, after you get the citation, there'll be posting requirements. Usually you gotta post it in a place that's visible. Uh, could be the job site, could be the kitchen, you know, read the instructions. That's pretty perfunctory. Uh, but here's the key thing is you need to schedule that informal conference, right? Most states require that the informal conference occur before you can test. Okay. There are some states that, that differ a little bit, but the informal conference gives you an opportunity to potentially settle the dispute. Okay. Here's some things that, that people need to understand. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but uh, is the informal conference is not confidential, right? It is not mediation, meaning anything that you say there could be used against you. And you need to know that I have literally kicked roofing contractors under the table. Um, pretty hard too. Uh, <laughs> because they, you know, the OSHA investigators start using it as a deposition, start taking all this testimony. That's not the point of it. The point of an informal conference is to put your best foot forward to try to get 
to see what the what they have like i go in and i like to play dumb i'm like hey i'm just a dumb lawyer can you tell me what you you know i don't understand where this is coming from do you have any photos right mm -hmm. and oftentimes they will sit there and they will show me what they have which helps me analyze the case better okay i couldn't get that through the equivalent of a public records request act the freedom of information act request. i couldn't get that so oftentimes i get that uninformed when i go there here's something that i want everybody to understand don't focus on the money the money is a trick okay they will come in and you'll have a twelve thousand dollar fine let's say we're going to give you 40 percent off because you are awesome okay <laughs> and this is a one-time deal you better take it that's fine but the problem is that you then become an annuity especially if you get cited for like a b13 violation or b10 or any of the ones that you might do every single day of your working existence they're going to come back to you over and over and over again because they want that repeat they want the big bucks right so pay attention to the citation not the money that's a hard thing for a lot of contractors to understand but look to recharacterize or eliminate those citations that are are most likely to hurt you um that is what i like to focus on okay so great example is if you get hit with you know a fall protection violation and you can change it to failure to wear a life vest of course that can happen but giving you that as an example then great you're never going to get cited with that again right so generally more specific is better than less so the more specific that you get on the citation the less likely it is that you will be cited for something similar in the future so i you know you will get a handful of violations and focus on those big ticket items you know if you can't figure out how to tie off a ladder shame on you yeah. right if if there's a B13 violation, you know, on a residential fall protection violation, anybody can get that from just taking off their rope to get to the ladder. That can happen almost every single day, right? And unintentionally or intentionally. So really focus on those things that are going to hurt. Then obviously the money is important. Yeah. What a lot of people don't realize, Heidi, is there are special provisions that can be added to the stipulation that happens in an informal conference. You can add special language in there that um, says that it can't be used in any action other than OSHA. So if you got bad guy lawyers out there, personal injury lawyers coming after you, it'll block oh, that. Okay, you can get a payment plan. There's all these different things that a lot of people don't know about. But again, you got to ask. OSHA will never give you any of this information. You have to ask for it. And have good counsel. Who knows to ask those and talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, this question, I think it's from Andy. Hello, Andy. Um, is it, it kind of fits in here. He said, should you try and settle or fight everyone to the end? Is there a me happy medium or yeah. all case by case? So this is going to be an unusual thing for a lawyer to say, but I believe this in, in any dispute. Okay. You guys are business owners, right? And business always comes first the you know fighting for principle is great i love clients that want to fight for principle i can handle that all day long but the reality is is that you need to put negativity behind you and move on and what i like to do is i like to weigh the cost benefit analysis now you may be in a situation where you have no other choice but to fight like the contractor that had a willful right and you got to take that to the conclusion and that's fine but otherwise, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the best deal that you can, see whether or not you can live with it, and see if it might make sense to contest to go to that next level where you might have a different group of people to negotiate with, okay? 
uh, you really want to think about the future. The future is what really dictates. It's not what's in front of you now. It's the likelihood of you getting hit with the same thing as a repeat. Okay, they can look back up to five years. There is a lot. It's a long time, right? Um, so you really want to think about that because that can ultimately affect whether or not you, you settle now or decide to kind of contest and move forward. Wow. And that kind of takes us right to the next um, discussion. And that is right in there, serious repeat and criminal penalties. Yeah. So just so everybody knows, there's you can get other than serious, serious repeat willful. Okay. And one of the things that can we we handle a lot of very high profile OSHA defense cases, not just in construction. We do agriculture, we do MSHA mining collapses, we do general industry, manufacturing, you name it. And um, we, we see the worst of the worst, right? We, we handle the routine stuff, but we get the willfuls, we get the fatalities, we get ones where there are criminal, potential criminal penalties involved. And uh, we've had ones where you might've seen a press release that sounds just awful, We've had cases like that recently where the entire thing is thrown out. So just because you see something in the press doesn't mean that it's necessarily accurate. And um, recently, uh, not during this administration, but the past one, OSHA said that they were going to kind of discontinue some of the press release activity they were doing. So what you need to be aware of is anytime there's a fatality or serious injury involved, the chances for a criminal citation against ownership, criminal penalty aspect, increases dramatically. Um, anytime there is, uh, if you hide evidence, right? Don't ever do that. Don't don't obstruct justice. Always produce everything that you've got. Always tell the truth, right? Um, because we, you, you will get into situations where, you know, that could be potentially be an issue. So oftentimes, what happens is these penalties come out and there's a variety of factors that OSHA uses to determine the amount of the penalty. Things like the size, the gravity, all these different types of things. Um, you know, so the one thing that I want to hit home is, is don't take any, even if it's just a serious citation, one of the lower level ones, there's always the potential for something more coming down the road, right? That's always the issue is it's not just what's in front of you now. It's the fact that you become marked at that point and that OSHA can may come back and see you again to make sure whether you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And if you're not, then you're looking at a multiple of that. So. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm going to, since we, you already touched on informal conference, okay. I'm going to kind of keep going because we have things. And then Donna, will be right back to your question here in just a minute. But before we get to that question, let's go ahead and do notice of content, contest. Sure. So, yeah. So what I'll do is I'll take the last few slides and I'll talk about all of them right now so we can take questions because okay. I know there's a lot of great questions. So yeah. I'm going to wrap up the whole thing. So uh, notice the contest. If you if you have gone to the informal, you don't like what they have to offer and you want to contest the citation, it's very important that one, you provide notice in a timely manner. Okay, If it's a federal citation, it's 15 business days from the date you've received it. Second is, is you want to contest everything. Okay, I contest the citations. I contest the dollar amounts. I contest the facts. Seriously, I can test everything. Okay, it's usually a one-page, two-page, you know, correspondence. Send it via certified mail. Send it via email. Make sure they got it. Okay. Um, 
after the notice of contest has been issued, then OSHA will send you a formal administrative complaint. Okay, the complaint is very similar to a federal complaint. You can respond with answer and affirmative defenses. There are simple proceedings, there are complex proceedings. The reality is, is you always have an opportunity to settle. The difference is, is that usually you are involved with counsel for the other side at that point. The solicitor's office, Department of Labor counsel is who you usually deal with. And sometimes that's a good thing because you can, I can talk to the other side about, you know, whether or not they've got the facts needed to prove this. Uh, I can talk to them about whether or not it makes sense to throw hundreds of thousands of tax dollars at this when it doesn't make any sense at all, right? So that that is useful on occasion. Um, the one thing that I want everybody in it, Heidi, if you can forward to the unpreventable employee misconduct, yeah. There's one defense that I want to make sure you guys are probably wondering why was Trent spending so much time on documentation? And the reason is, I think it's the next slide. I, yeah, there it is. Is this the unbridled employee misconduct defense is the most successful and most often used defense. And it basically says, I told this employee to do XYZ. They didn't do it. They didn't listen. Okay, that's great, but you got to have certain documents to prove that. So First is, is you got to have a written work rule and an understandable language. We've talked about the importance of a safety manual. We've talked about the importance of conveying that to your employees. You got to have evidence uh, that the work rule was adequately communicated. So how do you do that? You know, through toolbox talks, through ongoing training, through all these different things so that you know that, that you're doing the right kind of thing. You got to have systematic and regular audits to try to identify these issues. Okay, we talked about the importance of doing both equipment and job site audits, and then a tiered system of discipline. So you have to be able to, oftentimes OSHA will last for the last three years of disciplinary history, everything from written reprimands to suspensions to terminations. So the key thing is, in fact, I think on that lower picture, there's probably some, uh, some OSHA violations. Yeah, the key thing is, is that you wanna make sure that, that you are actively engaged in um, disciplining people and writing it up in a way that supports your disciplinary policy that you, so that you can show that. So if you do all that, it gets you in the game to assert this defense. And if you're successful in the defense, citation's gone, okay? If you don't have any element here, if you don't have any of that documentation, you're not even in the game. So that's the key thing. I wanna end with that and then we'll switch to the questions is, if you want to succeed in OSHA, you must have these documents. Because if you don't, if you can't do that, you're not going to be able to even put on the most common defense that we all see. Okay. Wow. And uh, excellent. Wow. You went through those. So just so everyone knows those slides um, that Trent had up there that I kind of went through fast, we'll make sure Megan um, Ellsworth, our producers on the back end, we'll make sure this PowerPoint's available on the, on demand. So if you want to see some of those slides for a little bit longer than how fast I went through them, we'll do that. Um, but the questions just keep coming in. So please put your questions in the chat. We have one from Donna right now. Um, Trent, you can see it. Do you recommend for a yep. safety program for residential subs? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of, of great programs out there. You know, um, I, I work with a lot of different associations. You know, I'm general counsel for a lot of different ones. There's, there's a ton of great offerings that the associations have. Um, there are a lot of great safety consultants out there. I know, you know, Henry's on, on the line, John's on the line. There's, there's several others uh, that can put on specialized training for residential. Um, the key thing is, is, is focus on the things that they do on a daily basis. You know, uh, making one of the things that 
you want to watch out for is something that is is too complex. A lot of times, you know, when I'm seeing sitting in an audience and I see crew members there, you want to be able to capture their attention on the stuff that they do on a daily basis. And the best speakers are those that that have been there, done that, and understand what what is required. So really encourage that because I think that is is sort of a, a great way to do it. Um, Rich asked a good question here. Uh, what's a, what's regular when it comes to audits and inspections? And that's a great question, Heidi, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, I like if you do it too regular, then they can predict when you're going to do it. So, you know, with the equipment check, you should do that every morning, right? Every morning before you get out to the job, everybody should check their equipment. It's just like, you know, if I'm a soldier and I'm going out to war, I'm cleaning my gun and making sure everything's there. Same kind of thing, right? It's just part of the process. If you are doing it on, if you are going out and doing random unannounced job checks, you should do them at least once a month, if not more, depending on what your capability is. One thing that I want to tell you is for those of you who do commercial and there's a handful of you here, you know, use those daily reports as self-serving statements, right? You can put on a daily report, did a safety audit today, checked everybody. We talked about, you know, potential problems with skylights and, and falls there. Uh, some of the, the metal panels over these purlins look decayed, so we're putting up some extra plywood, making sure everybody's 100% tied off. All these self-serving statements are going to be great because there's going to be additional evidence and documentation you can produce to OSHA. Excellent. Um, and David just came in with, um, when it comes to OSHA inspections, does it matter whether it's a residential or commercial job site? Not really. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it's, there are different standards, obviously. You know, if you're low slope or steep slope, you've got different requirements, but um, they, you know, OSHA is going to get you regardless of what, of what it is. If you're if you're in a high visibility area, you're an easy target, right? If you're if you're you know doing a house in a gated community on a cul-de-sac where nobody's there, and you know it's going to be less likely. Regardless, the the possibility of you getting inspected is there. And you saw, um, and then we have one more, I think we have time for a few more questions. We have one from Jeff, um, terminating an EE after a severe safety violation where they were injured can be tricky due to employment laws guarding against reprisal actions. Thoughts? Yeah, so you always have to, it's a double-edged sword, right? If you are terminating someone for a safety violation and it's a first time offense, right? then you always run the risk of uh, a OSHA whistleblower type issue, right? So what I recommend, again, if you got a bad employee, you need to paper the file, right? If they have a history of doing the same thing and you have, and you have shown that they have a history of doing the same thing and they do it again, that makes your case a lot better than just having a one-time, you know, they didn't do something right and you fired them. Now, that being said, if it comes to safety or the potential risk of an employee suit, I'm always going to choose safety. If they did something that was so egregious, you know, that put you and everybody else at risk, you got to do what you got to do, right? And that's kind of how I, I look at things. Um, you know, one of the other things I want to mention to everybody is, is obviously, I've, I've written some books on this. If any of you guys want my book, please feel free to contact Heidi or contact me. I'm happy to send it to you for free. I've got a stack of them over here that I keep. So, you know, anytime I can help you guys, um, you know, or educate on what the rules are, please let me know. 
And just so everybody knows, that book actually is available on, on the Adams and Reese directory. Um, you can um, request it with the download, just fill out the form and you can get that from Trent too. So um, if you search his OSHA book, you'll find it on the site that way also. It's, it's in a number of places. So, um, and of course you can just email us. Um, the, um, one last thing, Trent, that yep. and, and I think you've gotten a lot. I just want to say you've gotten a lot of praise here that this has helped a lot. And so for everyone, this is the kind of stuff that'd be great to have people watch on demand. Um, and Trent is always available to get in touch with. You can get a hold of him through the directory also. So any last thoughts, Trent, before we wrap up this very informative hour? Yeah, I'm look, I'm I'm obviously very passionate about this. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer. I, I really believe strongly in safety. I think it's incredibly important, but I also um, believe that there is a way to present things to help mitigate against potential, you know, OSHA liability. And the one thing I'm just a real big advocate is, is, is cooperate, be civil, but know your rights, know your rights and assert them, right? These are the rights that you are given. Don't be afraid to assert them because they can make the difference between you know, uh, getting a bad citation and that mark on your record versus not having it. So. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Trent. Thank you. And thank you all for being here today and for watching. Um, we love bringing this kind of information. I mean, we love having Trent on always. So Trent, we appreciate you so much and everything you give back to the industry. Thank you. Um, Same here. Thank you. Thank you. We'd really like to invite all of you to join us again a month from now, the last Wednesday of June. We're going to have on um, the next RLW is going to be what's hot in metal roofing and walls. So we're pretty excited about that. We're going to have some leading manufacturers talking about what's going on in metal. I know how much interest there is in that. So I hope to see you all there. Um, I do want to also let everyone know, and Trent kind of touched on this a little bit today, but tomorrow morning we have our coffee conversations and Henry Stakes, who's on the call today, thank you, Henry, or on the webinar, um, is going to be our guest along with Steve Little and John Espenshade, who are going to be talking about NCCER and apprenticeship training. Um, don't miss it. Seven o'clock Pacific. You can register on the site. You all know where coffee conversations are. So please join us tomorrow morning. It's going to be great. Um, and as we mentioned, you can find <laughs> Henry, I love your comments. Um, you can find Trent under Adams and Reese directory across. Also, Trent writes for us constantly under the RCS influencers. Thank you, Trent, and some great articles. So if you're looking, just search on Rupert's Coffee Shop and you're going to find a lot of information that you want. I thank you all for being here today. Please share this. It will be on demand within 24 hours. And like I said, we're going to have Megan post this PowerPoint with it too. So you'll be able to get a transcript, the podcast, or the video, or the PowerPoint, all right here on Rupert's Coffee Shop. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks again, Trent. Thanks, guys.